Good morning, and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. I'm your host, Erica. I am your editor, Bryce. And today we have a guest named Neil Wakefield, who's going to talk to us about his book, The Uncommon Criminal. Hi, I'm Neil Wakefield. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. So today we have our first guest on the podcast, and he's going to be sharing with us a book that he wrote. So Neil, if you'd like to give us a quick explanation about sort of the history of the development of the book itself and kind of what you're going to be sharing with us. Sure. So um, The Uncommon Criminal is a book I started writing about seven years ago or so. It took about five years to finish. And the, the idea was essentially just, I was always obsessed with action movies as a kid, but I always thought that the plots were terrible and nothing was realistic. So I set out to write an action movie that was realistic and had interesting characters with good plot. And I like books better than movies. So that's kind of the inspiration of where it came from. And then the stories themselves were just interesting things that I found fascinating as I was doing my research. So, for example, there's an entire chapter where the characters go to Tanzania to look into this mineral called tanzanite. It's a fairly rare, precious gemstone. And the reason why they do that is I read an article one time about tanzanite, and I was like, oh, that's super cool. So that became an entire chapter in the book. So today's chapter, we're going to be discussing a diamond heist in France. This takes place about 120 pages into the book. It's about a third of the way through. It's the first major operation, I guess you could say, that the main characters go on after leaving Chicago. So could you sort of break down what sort of format does this book have? Because it's not really, I mean, it kind of is one continuous life story, but it, each chapter is kind of its own own mini story, in essence? Yeah, so it's, it's essentially an autobiography. It's the main character writing down the entirety of his life from about the ages of 16 until the end. So it's written somewhat like an epic. Every, every chapter is an individual story with an overarching plot that's taking place across the entire book. So, for example, in this chapter, there, there are some bits and pieces that are fragmented in there that are about the overarching plot that's going on. And it sort of starts to unfold in this chapter is the first real sign that you kind of get the sign that something's not on the up and up as they, the characters thought it was up to this point. And then, obviously, the bulk of the chapter is them going on this diamond heist. So, so this so this will act as kind of on its own, but also kind of as like a teaser for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, you could you could say that it. Like I said, you I wanted to pick something that was early on enough in the book that it wouldn't really affect, like it wouldn't spoil anything for somebody that hasn't read it, obviously. Because that's to me the mystery and the twist and the things like like that's that's what draws me into a book. So I am very careful not to spoil it for someone. Okay. So I wanted to make sure I picked something that was early enough on that it wouldn't spoil anything. But I also wanted to pick something that was fairly self-contained to one crime as opposed to something like the Tanzania chapter, which is all about political intrigue, where they basically have to get the parliament of Tanzania to change their vote on a specific issue. And so there's a lot of little crimes that take place while they're getting to that end goal. Okay. Well, um, if you want to go ahead and dive into whichever part you'd like to. Um, so are you, are you going to give kind of a, an overall breakdown of this story? Are there certain sections you're going to read, or is it just a read-through of that part? So um, I'm going to kind of just summarize it without trying to explain too much of the, 
obviously the backstory, because like I said, we're about 100 pages in, so there's camaraderie and there's characters that have been built that obviously wouldn't make sense to someone that hasn't read it. And then obviously there's bits in there that are for the overarching plot that may, would make no sense for the context of what we're doing. So I'm kind of just going to just set the stage and then kind of go through what their their thought process was because the main character is from my head, so his thought process is mine in a lot of ways. Okay, well, and then Erica and I will be here to react accordingly. Yeah, please do. Cool. So our story picks up with our main character, Neil Wakefield, and... His best friend, Cole, are headed to France. They've been contracted by a man they know named Alan, who wants them to steal a large shipment of diamonds from a diamond store in Paris. So he's kind of like a criminal for hire, essentially. Sort of. This is kind of their first job outside of... They they were part of a like a gang inside Chicago that had disbanded, and now they were moving on to the next stage in their careers. They are at this specific diamond store because not only does it do retail diamond work, it also does the etching for the serial numbers on diamonds. So the people that are hiring them need a large quantity of currency for a specific thing. And typically, when you need a ton of money, you don't generally use dollar bills because $20 million in dollars is a lot of weight. So typically you use either diamonds or artwork would be the two most common because you could get, uh, occasionally you'll use like bearer bonds, but the two more common are diamonds and artwork because you could trade one $6 million painting for $6 million of whatever it is you wanted. Diamonds work the same way, but there's a small problem with that in that every diamond above a certain size has its own individual serial number etched into it, just like a dollar bill. If you pulled out a dollar bill, they all have their own serial number. Meaning once they're stolen, there's a database for them. If they're ever found, it can be traced back and it makes it really difficult. So if you can steal diamonds before they're etched, essentially you have untraceable money, which is what the higher ups have hired these people to get. So the biggest problem they have is that all of these new diamonds that have been unetched are kept in a shockproof and thermal-proof case that basically the only way to open it would be with the key. Now, the key is on the owner of the diamond shop, and there's no real way to get it off of him, and they're going to open the case on Friday. It's Monday, so they have four days to figure out what on earth they're going to do. Now, this is what the main character, Neil, does best. His ability to solve a situation like that is what he's known for. It's why he was contracted for this job. So his solution that he comes up with essentially is if they can trick the diamond manager into opening the case for a few minutes and then distract him, they can just swap them out with fake diamonds. He'll close the case again. They won't notice until Friday. That's their plan is the, the classic bait and switch that you would see in any classic heist movie. The, the challenge comes in with one, how are they going to get in there? And two, how are they going to distract the diamond manager? So Neil's solution is the building is an old building in Paris, like most buildings are. So the ventilation system has been added. It doesn't actually exist or wasn't there when the building was built. So it doesn't fit with the rest of the building. So his plan is to hide Cole, his compatriot, inside the vents overnight. And then the next morning he can come in in some way, cause a ruckus that would distract the diamond manager out of the back and into the front of the shop, which would allow Cole to get out, take the diamonds, swap them out, and then leave. A ruckus like a person climbing out of the ventilation system. Something, right, yeah, <laughs> but ideally a little bit uh, loud enough that you wouldn't hear that, but also important enough that it would distract someone from the back. The only other thing that they need to do is make sure he would, for some reason, open this case 
two days before he would normally. Normally, the case would stay locked until Friday. It's Wednesday. They need it to be opened on a Wednesday. So what they do is they have Alan pose as somebody from the Diamond Company saying that there's a problem with the shipment. Can you check on it? So at the time that he does that, opens the case. At the same time, Neil starts smashing cases and making a, a, a scene in the front of the, the, uh, the retail section of what would be the diamond shop, which pulls the diamond shop owner out into the front of the store. Cole jumps out, swaps out the diamonds, jumps out the back, and everything looks like it's going to get, everybody's going to get away scot-free. Except that, turns out smashing cases in a diamond store is not really a great idea. And the cops show up and arrest Neil as he's attempting to leave. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Now, Neil being Neil, and this is what he does, he planned for this problem potentially to happen. He told Cole once he escaped with the diamonds to leave, drive five blocks in the wrong direction, and then turn around and come back. And Cole, of course, is curious as to why, and Neil being Neil tells him not to worry about it. Because odds are it won't matter, but he was prepared for it in case it did. So they get him in the back of the cop car, and he picks the locks on the cuffs, because that's a thing that you can do when you're, you know, a super criminal. And he breaks the window out of the back of the cop car and then just jumps out onto his compatriot's car that's driving in the opposite direction. And they get away scot-free, although they are stuck in a hotel for two days hiding from the police before they can get back on their jet and get out of there. That's the general crux of the crime itself. Like I said, it's maybe 60% of the chapter. And then the last few pages is them tracking Alan through Paris trying to figure out what it is he is actually doing there because they're not buying for a second that he just was there to steal diamonds. But that, uh, that is essentially the crime itself. It's pulled from a couple of different sources of famous actual heists. Like I said, like the, old, the bait and switch thing is a pretty common theme from real heists to heist movies. So that's where some of the inspiration for that one came from. But the bigger inspiration was just that they needed diamonds for later in the story. Right. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what I was thinking while you were telling this is how you mentioned that a lot of the inspiration from this came from action movies with terrible plots or terrible mm-hmm. characters or whatever. So that made me think me being in the filmmaking industry, maybe someday some of this could be turned into short films or something. That'd be really I, interesting. I know, I know a lot of people that have read it have said, they're like, it's so weird. I picture it like a movie in my head. And I'm like, that makes total sense because I wrote it like a movie in my head. I just don't like screenplays. So in my years of studying crime, I've never really studied a heist. So this was like a whole different thing for me to really kind of look into i typically tend to study the more i don't want to say gruesome but pretty much more the more gruesome crimes yeah so this was just kind of a different way to look at crime i guess so i think one of the disconnects between what we usually research and what you're writing is that we don't normally end up researching 
times where things have worked, worked out, out, right? Yeah. So, because this seems well, like... A- I kind of feel like we do. Because how many crimes do we research where the killer or the kidnapper gets away? I feel like that works in their favor. Like like the cold cases type things? or Yeah. Okay. I think what I would describe like that disconnect is that what Erica was saying about how normally we're researching the serial killers and the murderers and you know people gone missing stuff like that so right. this is a this is more of like a victimless crime kind of thing at to least this extent, story yeah right. oh yeah there's plenty of dead people i think <laughs> at last count i believe neil's body count is just over 200 across the whole book at the end of the book yeah wow. something like that okay yeah so, so he's up there a little bit so then maybe we'll have you come back and talk about one of those at some point yeah i could i like i said i could pick out any chapters i didn't i didn't know where i would go with it i wanted to kind of keep it as soft as i could for an easy one uh but there's like i said there's plenty of other ones there's one of the more interesting ones to me was the tanzania chapter just because it was a lot of little things of trying to figure out how to flip specific congressional members so for example one is blackmail one is bribery one is you know what i mean they have these different things they needed to do to flip each of these people individually and one of them the way that they do it is they just straight up kill a guy the, the one congressman, the only thing he wants in the world is to figure out who killed his wife. So they find that guy and just hand him over to him. They're like, eh, eh, kill him. Go ahead. That's fine. Okay. And it happens to be a person they knew personally. So they had to deal with that as well. So it sounds like your book has such a wide variety that it would appeal to almost any interest in any crime almost because there is the heist and the murders and, you know, end up with 200 dead people. But yeah, so I think, I mean, that's obviously a really attractive aspect of of the book itself. Well, one of the things I liked was the idea that they weren't super specific. Like Neil's skill set is just figuring out how to outsmart people whatever reason that may be. So in this case, it's outsmarting the security system that this diamond retailer has put in place, right? They have this super expensive case. They have all these fail safes. And Neil figures out in about a two hours worth of time how to beat all of that. It's like national treasure type stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the, one of the influence. Uh, one of the bigger influences is at, and where the, 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 na- the character's first name comes from is Neil Caffrey from White Collar. Nice. So that's, I mean, that's just being able to outsmart people, but being maybe slightly more ruthless as well. So in your book, is, is Neil more self-taught? Um, a combination of both. So they, he reads a lot of books. He has some natural talent, which is why the, the gang called the Orphans, they pick him up at the beginning of the story. Because Cole notices his, he seems to have this natural knack for stealing things, outsmarting people, that kind of thing. And so he trains him a little bit. Neil does a little bit of, of research and reading and learning up on things he didn't know. And then as the story progresses, he kind of learns by doing in some ways. Like I said, the fact that he seems to be able to very quickly outsmart and outsmart and outthink his opponents is what keeps him alive throughout most of the story. So does the story talk a lot about his background at all? A little bit. It's uh, he basically or- orphaned himself early on in the story, and he has like a younger brother to take care of, and so he kind of does what he has to, and then finds this makeshift family, which is something he never kind of thought he would have, and then it's from there kind of him dealing with the idea that how how much what am I willing to do to keep these people safe? So his his journey into the criminal world was less out of just an interest for getting ahead in life through like stealing and stuff, but more of like out of necessity for becoming orphaned and just trying to figure out ways to stay alive and get what he needs to 
yeah. live. Uh, initially, yes. He does He does admit to himself and then to anyone who would be reading it that he does really enjoy outsmarting people. He enjoys committing crimes. Like this heist, for example, is very much his cup of tea. It's something, you're right, victimless crime, which is something he likes. He said, if I, you know, I would do this all the time if, if nobody had to die. But unfortunately, that tends to not be how it works for right. him. And he kills over 200 people? Yeah. I think at this point <laughs> in the story, he's already at like... 10 or 11. Jesus. What chapter is that? The one you just described? I believe 19. 19. 18. 18. 18. 19 things start getting a little hairy. Yeah. So let's give a little bit more context for the audience. How how many pages is the book and about how many chapters? 397 pages. Okay. And I want to say it's 36. 38 with a like two page epilogue. Cool. Do you plan on doing a sequel for this book? Sequel, no. I say there's a chance it may just end definitively. We really have no idea. Yeah, I, I, I hate that question because I feel like I have like That's... by saying n- nothing against the book because I think it's a very normal question. But right. for a book that is all about the twist and the and the turns of the character, mm-hmm. and it is very clearly following one character. If I say no, then it leans you to believe that you, there's a very definitive end right. story. And if I say yes, then it leads you to believe there's a very clear either well, way. It kind of forces my hand. So one of the major plot devices is this shadowy cabal of people called the committee. That basically, it, it's, it's a group of 13 people that kind of decide decisions for a lot of the world at large. That's who he's working for unwittingly at this point in the story. So the idea of building more stories around a world where that exists appeals to me. So I could build more stories within the world that this takes place. Because it's basically just the world now, but with this very shadowy organization that has this belief that the world needs to be kept in a certain balance of chaos for them to operate effectively. If it becomes too peaceful, people start looking into the things they do. If it becomes too chaotic, then they can't effectively operate. I mean, in a sense, a lot of people believe that's kind of what's going on anyway. Yeah, my mother was a big conspiracy theorist. (laughs) So I'm sure there's some of that inspiration. In so there that well. so that you say he unwittingly is doing that right now. Is that's why he starts to become suspicious about Alan? Is that kind of that transition into that? Yes. Okay. It, 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 like they're flying on a private jet to Paris and staying in like a really nice hotel, and they're like, "This is hmm. not right. Like the, this something, isn't something is wrong here. Something much larger is afoot for sure. Exactly, and that's why they decide to, at, at the end of the chapter they 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 do the the very classic double cross where they slip a like a GPS tracker in the bag that Alan takes when he leaves with the diamonds so they can follow him through Paris to figure out where he's going. Interesting. And this is their first meeting with the committee and they get to kind of very vaguely understand what's starting to go on. It won't be for three or four more chapters before. Because the thing about working with a criminal is that a criminal is already well aware of the worst side of people. So Right, exactly. one One of my favorite quotes in there is... Neil is in the room with the committee members and he says the fact that this group is able to operate with the egos in this room is staggering I like it back when you were writing this did you ever get really good ideas like while you were out busy doing something for a story and then you come back and you're like what in the hell was that idea because that was really good not really actually so the way I like to build my my stories is I kind of usually I start with like an ending so for this, I very clearly had, I knew where the story was going to end. And then because I write in first person, I kind of build this character in my head for sometimes a long time. This one, I think, took me two or three months to build Neil Wakefield in my head. And then I kind of 
have once I have this framework, I can kind of just set stories along it. So a lot of times I have a more concrete outline of this is what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the chapter, but I know what the chapter is. Gotcha. That that sounds pretty similar to how I approach filmmaking sometimes because I know general plot beats that like this specific scene I have in my head I know exactly what I want to happen in there because it, it's really cinematic or something really interesting happens I don't know how we're going to get there or why but I have these general outline and then it just kind of fills in from there so that that makes sense it's very similar to what the way you do it I know Stephen King said something once that was essentially a character good characters write themselves which never really made sense to me until I started writing. And then I understood there are definitely, like I said, I'm, I know, like, for example, where a chapter is going to start. I know what the, the beats of that chapter are going to be, and I know where it's going to end. But a lot of that stuff in the middle fills itself in in a way that I a lot of times didn't predict. There's a, a chapter I can think of very clearly that, again, the Tanzania one for some reason. must have really liked that <laughs> one. There's a bit in that that I had no intention of writing and just was writing and it kind of just happened. And then I was like, oh, I have to figure out how to a way to get them out of this problem now because I didn't intend to write them into this problem. Which good storytelling is really about good ways of overcoming problems. That's true for writing books, movies, just about anything. It's all about problem solving. Essentially. Well, I think that's something that humans relate to is problem solving. And somebody who does it well is something we admire, even if their solution is sometimes abhorrent. So I'm kind of curious about your decisions for characters. So like, obviously the main character is written with you in mind. So when you bring other characters in, are there other people that you kind of like, cause each, I mean, there's specific characteristics about people. Like, there's a specific type of person. There's kind of a limited number of types of people. So, do you just pull from those types, or are there like specific people, maybe movie characters you think of that inspire that? Um. So, yes and no. So, there's there are uh, actual people from my life who are characters in this book for one reason or another. There are people who I've stolen their names because I liked them for some reason or another. So, for example, in this, the all the characters I've mentioned so far, Alan. Neil and Cole. Cole was a friend of mine when I was a child, like in like first grade, and I just have a very clear vision in my head of what he looked like, and so I just aged him up. Like the character itself is completely different, but what he looks like and his name are stolen from an actual person I knew when I was gotcha. a kid. And then Alan is my my actual grandfather. I have I actually have his tat name tattooed on my arm. So the char again, character completely different, but what he right. looks like and his mannerisms and who he is is exactly that okay. in my head. So, so a lot of times for characters, ancillary, ancillary characters, that's where I come from for those. So something that would really become important if it ever was adapted into film, because you know exactly what these people look like. In my head, yeah, 100%. Okay. Do you have, are there any actors that like you kind of fill into there? Um, so I actually did, I have a, a Facebook page for this, and I, I put up that question for like the three biggest characters in the story, which are Neil Cole and then a girl named Jade. I said, who would you put as the actors and actresses for these? Because I have a picture in my head of what they look like, but I very intentionally do very little to describe my characters because I want you to be able, especially because it's written in first person, I want you to be able to put yourself in that situation very easily. And then I want you to be able to kind of craft what you think those people would look like as well. So it was interesting to me to see what they picked from the very little descriptors that I gave them because they were pretty similar to what they were in my head. So I was like, that's weird. It's almost like it worked out. But I also think you don't need to over-describe things. I've always been a big proponent of not filling your your chapters with just endless description of things you can you can get by with the bare bones and then describe what's happening as i much prefer to describe action as opposed to setting 
Interesting. So what would you say would be your favorite chapter out of the book? You don't have to go into detail, but just like the number. I know you keep mentioning the Tanzania chapter, but... That's oddly not my favorite. Okay. It just is funny to me that that one... If, I feel like that one, it's longer, so there's a lot that goes into it. And there's also a lot of, like, like I said, because it's so many little individual crimes that fit for what we were talking about in a lot of different ways. I really like the chapter where Neil gets tortured. I don't know why. Oh boy. Okay. I, there's something about that chapter that I think it was one of the first things I thought. I mean, the last chapter to me is special because it's the first thing I thought of. Like to me, with the way I write my books, ending is the most important part to me and having this really cool twist. So I would say probably that chapter, but a close second is uh, I think the next chapter, actually, chapter 19. So chapter 18 is your favorite? No, 18 is oh. what we just read. I think 19 is the. One where he's tortured? Yeah, yeah. just because it was weirdly <laughs> one of the first things I thought of. Because he has this very unique... Yeah, chapter 19. He has this very unique... The, the person who tortures him has this very unique way that he tortures. And I, for whatever reason, that came to my brain. And so Now I, I have liked, questions about your mind. Yeah, It's destroyed. It sounds like he might be a masochist. <laughs> I d- well, yeah, I guess you could say. Because the character is me in a weird way. Um... That was going to be my other question is, so you based Neil off of yourself? Sort of. He was kind of like an alter ego. So are these all crimes that you have committed or (laughs) wish to commit in the future? No, I I like the, the aspect in the same way the character does. I like the aspect of outsmarting things like that so I, that I've always been fascinated with like crimes and things like that people that got away with really clever things or came up with really ingenious solutions to problems that outsmarted people whose whole job were to stop people from doing that 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 stuff fascinated me and that's why the the main character is that but like I said he's very much an alter ego in that he's more suave and confident and more interesting and worldly and well-read and all these things like a better version of me but maybe also a little darker like you know what i mean like everything on everything he's me if you turned everything up to 11 all the good and all the bad so did you base him off the zodiac killer at all because you're sitting there talking about people that are outsmarting the people whose job it is no but i did i did research him okay I've I've also read them or watched the movie too with uh, when I think of somebody that's taunting police and what's his name? Yeah. It was the guy who was just it was the the cop in it is the guy who was just uh, played the fishbowl head guy. Yeah, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Thank you. Yep, that's there we the go. One. I knew fishbowl I knew who head. I knew I knew who it was. My brain just could not get there. Um, yeah, so I, like I said, there's a lot of inspiration. The the biggest ones for Neil to me were uh, Neil Caffrey probably from White Collar, uh, Nathan Drake from Uncharted. A little bit of Indiana Jones, a little bit. Like, I liked that, like, devil-may-care attitude towards danger, and that was something that I gave Neil... Like a Han Solo-type person. Yeah, somebody that, yeah, very much plotted their own course and kind of let the chips fall where they may. Like, for example, after Neil... If I can find the line. After he jumps on back into Cole's car, he has a very just, like, poignant but simple line. So he, he jumps out of a moving police car onto his car. Has Cole from the driver's seat hand him his pistol and shoots out the tires of the police car chasing them and then slides back into his car and res- and just looks over to Cole and says, we should go. <laughs> very casual. <laughs> exactly. I loved that like very casual nature to danger that it always seemed like the heroes of stories had. And I liked the idea of giving all of the heroic attributes of a character to a bad guy, essentially. I'm kind of picturing Fast and Furious in my head with them jumping the first, between yeah, cars. Yeah, I love the yeah. first one. 
Yep. So they're, they're, like I said, I, I I drew from basically every action movie from the nineties. I was going to say this to whole the, thing, like, two thousand five. This whole thing just lends itself to filmmaking for sure. Mm-hmm. Like my favorite movies growing up were just like just garbage action films, like Transporter Three, Triple X, like just non like the second Matrix movie, like movies that were there just to exist just to show you cool action sequences right. and some of them were there just to push technology forward like the matrix well the first matrix movie is a phenomenal movie i'm not knocking for the sure. matrix at all but they, as you move forward it feels like like to me the second matrix movie is really just for that one scene in the where he stops all the bullets and then he fights all those guys you know what i'm talking about in the second in movie the second matrix yeah, yeah second matrix i'm thinking about the fight scene where he pulls the metal pole out of the ground that uh, yeah that i mean but oh you know what i'm talking yeah. about like that scene is so cinematically fun to watch yeah. That I feel like they like I feel like a lot of those movies got made for one scene and then they were like we got to justify a movie mm-hmm. around this. Triple X is the same thing. I feel like the snowboarding sequence in Triple X he like is like snowboarding. He jumps out of a plane and parachutes down a mountain with a snowboard and then blows the mountain up and he's r- basically raising an avalanche. I'm like first off this is nonsense. But secondly, this entire movie was built around that shot, and then Probably. they built a film around this. Which is kind of how I feel. I don't remember the name of the movie, but the one where she shoots the bullet and it goes in the circle around oh, wanted. 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 Yes. Right. and then shoots in the that, that one to me is a MacGuffin, right? It was can we make like, like let's make a movie where all our characters basically are normal people with superpowers, yep. and their superpower is the ability to just never miss bullets, and yep. then we'll just build a movie around that. Yeah, that's ba- what it was based around a novelty idea. Exactly. It w- I wasn't wanted a comic though. I think for whatever reason, I have a. It was based on some, some sort comic, of written material. I don't I'm remember sure before. somewhere. Well, I mean, to be fair, almost every movie is based on a book at some point. Mm-hmm. There's very rarely a. I think maybe out of outside of like a couple of Tarantino movies, I think almost everything is based on a book at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or at least inspired by. Yeah, yeah, in in some way, shape, or form. That makes sense. Or or real events. In the case of yes. like even like even the Zodiac Killer movie. Is oh, based yeah. on a book that's about real events, and then was a movie that's mm-hmm. about the book that's about real events. Yeah. It's just a circle. Yeah, 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 that's how it works. Turns out nobody has anything original in their head. Like even this, like all of this is like all characters that are cobbled together from other character, like bits. Like I like that bit of that character and that bit of that character, and then I'm gonna take a plot that kind of already exists and sort of rework it and reframe it and oh, make yeah. it work within my. Well, humanity as a whole is surprisingly limited, so it's hard to pull new ideas. Oh, out especially of, after a couple thousand years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's not there's not much new out there. Yeah. It's like people associate with kind of the same few ideas of Well, it's why the hero's journey is so right. popular, right? Is it's mm-hmm. everybody can identify. It's why I specifically didn't write that way. Yeah. Is I was like I'm 100% not doing that. Making his own type of destiny type thing. Well, and to me the hero's journey has such a cliche progression to it that I wanted to subvert that very quickly. Yeah, because it, it borders on predictable at some point. Yes, and that's like one of the things, like uh, when I did my I did a book signing a couple weeks ago, when I did it somebody that was there was about 40 pages from the end and they were like, I can't wait to tell you my theory on what happens. And I'm like, okay, so we kind of sit down, she's telling me, and I'm like she was like, you know, I've got all these things and I th- this is what I think is going to happen. I'm like, well, if I've done my job right, you're wrong. Like, if, if you can predict the ending, then I've done a bad job. So your goal from the beginning was some sort of very surprising ending? I don't know that... I feel like it's one of those things where you don't see it coming until it happens, and then you're like, oh, yeah, that's the only way it could have ended, isn't it? Okay. That's the goal, at least for this story. I'm a, it, different, it varies from book to book for me. Like, I'm working on two right now. So you told them they should be wrong. Were they wrong? Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> yes. They, so they were 100% right, but completely wrong. 
Okay. I don't, I don't, that I can't, <laughs> I can't explain that without ruining the ending, but yeah, like they had all of the beats correct, but all of the reasoning and the location wrong. Gotcha. Sort okay. of. It's kind of like, I'm imagining, I can't think of the guy's name, but the one that does Get Out and... Um, like the director? Yeah. I mean, Bloom... What's that other... Bloomhouse is Bloom the... Bloom House, yeah. Bloomhouse is the director. Like the That's house the company. Yeah. Um, I don't remember who did Get Out. Are you was, thinking of the guy who did Hereditary? Because that's not the same guy that did Get Out. No. That movie's terrifying. I can't get through that movie without oh throwing God, up. I've never so finished that awful. movie. After the there's scene a scene in the car. No, there's a scene at the end of the movie that's the most frightening scene I've ever never seen. Never even in gotten that far. Life. I watched it once and decided never again. I have not. Perhaps I should try. Don't. No? Don't. Do you not like scary movies? I enjoy most of them. I love I, scary so, movies. I hate scary movies, but generally because <laughs> I, the things that matter to me the most in a film are plot, character development... And to me, both comedies and scary movies have the same problem that generally they're weak on both. Yeah. Comedy movies is getting you from beat to beat so we can make you laugh. Horror movies is the exact opposite, getting you from beat to beat so we can make you scream. So generally, I steer away from them because most of them are not good, in my opinion. This one, however, is very, very good. And one thing that I think you'll appreciate this from a cinematography perspective, I think one thing that bad horror does is to get you to... To make you scared, they draw all of your attention to the center of the screen, then put a big jump scare in the center of the screen, followed by an audio cue. What really good smart horror does is they put something really scary in the upper like left-hand corner of the screen, and then just let it sit there for a while until you notice it, and it's terrifying. Yeah, it almost it's, it's sort of similar to comedy, where timing is almost all of it. And yeah. then clever cinematography just really enhances it. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what this shot is. It's it's a shot that you could literally watch the movie and not notice. The character doesn't acknowledge it. Like he get, he wakes up and walks out of his room without acknowledging that there's something weird going on. And if you didn't like, if you weren't paying attention, it wouldn't have scared you. That to me is really smart horror, and that's yeah, like sure. that sort of stuff really appeals to me. So when yeah. somebody does something really cool, also I appreciate talent. When somebody does something really creative or cool, I don't care what the field is, I'm interested. Yeah, so like coming from a cinematography perspective, so movies like Sinister, like yeah. both the Sinister movies, like there are parts that have really good cinematography and that interests me, even though the star the story has parts that are like, eh, okay, whatever. But right. um so I I just pay attention to different things. Right, yeah, people. we're very very clearly looking at different things in a film. Although I do appreciate the good things if they're in a, in a field I don't study nearly right. as well. So ideally you would have um, a person that I work with often, um, Adam King. He is really, really good at story. Um, he is, that's just what he does. That's his passion. And he will tear a script apart and start from scratch just to make it you know as perfect as right. possible. So that kind of thing. He and I work together a lot. So like cinematography, the technical details, that's my thing. So right. I feel like him and I working together, we get the best of both worlds. Oh, for and sure. hopefully that makes the best projects. But um, what you often get is a movie or something where it's focused just on making it look and feel epic. And then the story's like, what are you doing? Right, and yeah. then sometimes you get the opposite. Um, so um, I, feel, I feel like your, your book, at least, is coming from the perspective of, of let's make a story good. Let's make characters interesting and relatable. And then obviously now it has the potential. For, for something bigger. Yeah, that's that was definitely the, the inspiration for sure, was just trying to like craft this story with, with a believable character that you felt like he was doing what you would do in that circumstance. Like, y you would try to never be in it, but if you were, 
you could understand the the solution he came up with, even if it was maybe fantastical in some ways. It it does feel very grounded in that, like, yeah, I get that this is a you have no really good options here, and that I like I I, I empathize with you having to make these really hard decisions, especially when you understand that it is hard for the character to make yeah. them. So it's it's sort of. It's sort of reminding me of some of the current Sherlock Holmes movies and TV shows where a lot of the decision-making and stuff is a little bit fantastical, but still maintains being grounded. And mm-hmm. if you really are paying attention, you probably could have figured out some of it yourself. Yeah, I know one person that was at the book saying that said they'd read it twice and they actually liked it better the second time around because they were like, there's so many like really good subtle hints and stuff that you've put in where it's, once you know what's going to happen, it makes it more interesting in some ways to know what's as you're reading through a chapter, like, I know where this is going to end, but it's cool to see that there were nods to that as you were. A lot of setups and payoffs that you weren't yeah, and anticipating. There's some, there's some that are, like, payoffs from chapter one that don't pay off to the very end of the story that, that are there because I knew where the ending was. That's one of the, I think, the benefits of writing an ending, at least in your head first, is that once you know where you're going, you can kind of have everything build to that as opposed to getting to a natural end point and then having to figure it out when you get there. Because I think endings is one of the hardest things anything does. I think getting the ending right is so difficult in storytelling. That that's, that's why I start with that and work my way. Yeah. And then, then go back to the beginning and then work through the middle. That's where people tend to get upset. It's like oh, they yeah. have their own idea. And right, exactly. Well, and especially when you're, when you're writing open-ended like that, you know what I mean? Which is, especially with TV shows, you see so much because you don't know how much, you know what I mean? It's like, we could have two more episodes, we could have 200 more episodes. We don't know. So we have to just keep it open-ended forever until... You just have like little mini endings, kind, kind of. Kind of. Well, we build up to what you think could be an ending, and then you have to fix that because you've got another season or whatever. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like almost, you should almost plan like, all right, we're going to do a four-season arc, and that's it, and then we're done. And then you can, if you, once you know your framework, you can work within that much easier. And that's kind of the way I do it with novels is I kind of, this is the hard out and we've got however long to get to that point. But once we feel like we've gotten to that point, we've gotten to that point. It's over. That makes sense to me. So where's your book available for people if they want to buy it? So it is available on Amazon in paperback and then digitally on Kindle right now. I'd like, I want to do an audio version eventually. Just because I know a lot of people that just don't... Like, I don't read anymore. Like, I consume everything auditorily because they can do something else while I'm doing that. Would you want, like, a voiceover artist to do that for you? Or would you want to read oh, it? Oh, I absolutely don't want to read it. No? <laughs> I'm the, I, I hate reading my own work. Like, even just when you were making me do it for my audio test, I'm like, this is the worst. I hate so, yeah. this. I just... Please kill me. I, I can't stand yeah. reading my own work. I don't know why. It's To me, it's like a weirdly private thing. You know what I mean? Like, I wrote it in my head or by myself. And yeah. then... I, I, here's the finished product you can have all of it but don't you know what I mean like I don't really share my work bit by bit as I'm going I don't do gotcha. that kind of stuff so yeah I, please someone else read it anyone <laughs> yeah I always preferred audiobooks I think for the reason because the act of reading kind of takes up part of your conscious mind whereas mm-hmm. if you're yeah. listening to it it frees up your imagination a little bit more I so I, I always preferred that and I truthfully I think most authors probably shouldn't read their own work because you read it like the author 
I would rather somebody who's good at reading to read it. You know what I mean? That can put inflection into characters and, you know what I mean? As the writer, all you're going to do is be re- write, reading it and then in the back of your head going, why did I write that? Like, that's, there's a flaw there. Yeah. I should have, like, I could have punched that sentence yep. up. Once there. again, just like filmmaking, a film is never really done. It right. just gets released. And I'm sure at some point you gave yourself some sort of hard deadline and said, you know, it just kind of has to be done. Everything from this point is so minor that you would probably only really care about those. That's exactly what happened. Was I, well, and actually what ended up being the motivation was I was working on new projects and I was not working on them because I was going back to this and being like, ah, I could punch this up or let me change this. or And it was just preventing me from, it was creatively stifling to do that. So I finally was like, all right, you know, one month from today, this is yeah. published. I'm at, so, at some point, things get over-edited. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I think Fitzgerald is probably the most famous one for that because he would write multiple versions of every chapter and then pick the one he liked the best. So sometimes he would mix ma- mix and match them, which is why sometimes the tone of, like, for example, his more famous books, the most famous one obviously being Gatsby, there are, like, weird almost tonal shifts from chapter to chapter sometimes to me. Like, as you're reading it, you're reading it, you're like, this feels really jovial, and then you'll read the next time, like, this feels darker, and I don't know why. It's probably because he took, you know, version A of chapter one, but version C of chapter two, and it's like, those didn't mesh as well as you thought they did, even though those were the two best versions. So yeah, I 100% agree. My uh, grandfather was a great grandfather was a writer, and he said that books are never uh, finished; they're just like edited or something to that effect. And I always liked that quote. It was essentially, "You're never really done." You it's just, somewhere so, in the editing process. Yeah, somebody else is going to tell you you're done, and that's actually a good thing, probably. Yeah. Which that's where a lot of like Hollywood stuff is like hard deadlines are a thing. Yeah, and they need to be. I think like like I, I as annoying as it is, but especially for. I think most creative people are perfectionists, and if you gave them infinity time to work on something, it would never, ever come out, ever. Because you just, not only, I think, are creative people generally really, like, very much perfectionists, but they're also really self-conscious. And so, a lot of time, we would rather just not let anyone see it and just keep it for ourselves and just assume that it's bad and work on it forever. And then it, you know, at a certain point, you're you're getting not only diminishing returns, but you're taking away from doing other stuff, which is probably what you should be doing. That's true. Creativity is a hard thing to maintain the proper direction all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Like even now, like I said, I'm writing two books right now. Why? Why am I? Do- why? I don't know. I don't know. I've probably got four or five different video projects at the same time, but and at some points, they kind of re-inspire new creativity because you get yourself in a different mindset and you just come back. Oh yeah, and the books are very different. Like yeah. one is an extremely dark, like very gritty, like d- delve into the criminal underworld, and then the other one is a much more light, like just interesting story. Although it is kind of a murder mystery. So, but the one is much more, much more lighthearted and just like fun, more like PG 13. And then the other one is very R rated, very dark, very gritty. And so they, they, to me, it's fun to go back and forth because it's one that's much more passively just observing just the, the, the worst things that humanity has to offer. And then going back to this very positive and upbeat character that's always just trying to like, you know, like move on and do better and that kind of thing. It's, it's an interesting, uh, dichotomy to work between okay so if if there's anybody listening that wanted to either learn more about the book or get in contact with you you have a facebook page for yeah so i have a facebook page called the the uncommon criminal where i put i put a lot of my updates on like when i'm going to have like book signings for example or when my books are on sale or things like that um and then i'm on instagram i am neil wakefield 
Okay. Uh, Which we should probably go through. Can you spell the name? Because it's not, it's a particular spelling. Yeah, so it's N-E-A-L-W-A-K-E-F-I-E-L-D. So it's not N. I-E-L, right. which is a lot of people would assume. Mm-hmm. And we'll link him on our social media. If Perfect. you guys want to check yeah. him out. And then we could probably also put a picture of the book itself on, sure. on social media. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of good money, and somebody spent a lot of their hard time on that. Uh, it so. looks really good. I, I really liked it. It came out exactly what I pictured in my head. So. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, if you, so if you want to get in contact with him, um, perhaps purchase a copy for yourself. Um, I'm sure he'd love feedback if you want to venture over to his social media. And thank you for listening, and we will see you on our next episode. Thank you for having me. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abbey. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.